it was just this incredible feeling of love. And I was feeling more love than I'd ever felt in my life from a my parents or a lover or, you know, anyone. And I opened my eyes and I realized everyone around there was feeling the same thing. And he was just radiating that. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Check it out. If you're someone that's trying to curb carb and sugar cravings or get into intermittent fasting or even a ketogenic diet and have found it very difficult, I have the answer for you. They're called electrolytes from a company called Element. Electrolytes are not only great for when you sweat from a workout. Many people are familiar with some of the electrolyte drinks and things like that, which are normally full of a bunch of toxic sugar, corn syrup, artificial colors, etc. But electrolytes actually have many different purposes. And when I found this company called Element, I was stoked because it completely eliminated my food cravings after dinner. And that's when I typically like to fast. So I'll eat dinner and I'll fast until the next afternoon. It's no problem when I wake up in the morning the next day because I'll have a nice fatty drink that keeps me going. But it's that time in between dinner and bedtime that I've often struggled with. So I was incredibly stoked to find these electrolytes that just taste delicious and are very effective. In fact, I probably go through them faster than I actually need to because I just like the taste of them. Legit. They're also great for low energy mornings when you wake up fatigued or with a headache or grogginess because you didn't get enough sleep or whatever reason caused you to wake up that way. Great thing to do is just uh, pour a glass of water, put one packet of the Element Electrolytes in there and just kickstart your day. They are very effective and I'm really happy to share them with you. So whether or not you're a hardcore athlete looking to recover or you're someone that just wants to cut down on certain types of foods or shorten your eating window, Element is the product for you. And here's what's great. These guys offer a totally risk-free money-back guarantee. They've also got a less than 0.5% return rate, uh, which means no one's really returning this stuff because it works and it's delicious. If you go to drinkelement.com slash Luke, they're going to hook you up with a sample pack for the cost of shipping, which is five bucks on U.S. orders. Each sample pack includes eight packets of Element. That's two citrus, two raspberry, two orange, and two raw unflavored. So go to drinkelement.com slash Luke. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash Luke. And this incredible offer is limited to one time per customer. When I was a kid, I was seriously addicted to sugar and candy. And even in my elder and hopefully wiser years, sometimes I still cave and end up like popping in a gas station and eating a really toxic chocolate candy bar. Now I've gotten better and better at that over the years because many companies have come out with delicious products that fulfill those cravings. Uh, that are so deeply ingrained in some cases with things that are actually good for you. And that's why I was super stoked to find this product called Cacao Bliss from Earth Echo Foods. These guys have created a superfood chocolate raw cacao powder. It's got the cacao, some of the cleanest, most pure cacao in the world, 
It's also got turmeric, black pepper to activate that turmeric, MCT powder for some healthy fats and energy, cinnamon for blood sugar regulation, monk fruit as a very safe sweetener, little coconut nectar as a prebiotic. Also has lacuma and mesquite, two superfoods that I've been really into for a long time and that are very hard to find in adequate amounts and products. And then they round this blend off with a little Himalayan salt. So what I like about this is that everything is, of course, organic, super high-end in terms of the ingredient deck. It's also really easy to mix into any kind of a drink, hot or cold, and it's quite portable as well. So you can take this powder anywhere you go and uh, light people at that party up. If you are ready to get into some seriously uh, decadent chocolate and superfood enjoyment, here is where you go, my friends. Well, you can click on the show notes. You'll see you'll see it there if you know what show notes are or in this podcast description on your podcast player. Or you can just go to earthechofoods.com slash Luke Story. That's spelled E-A-R-T-H-E-C-H-O-F-O-O-D-S. Earthechofoods.com slash Luke Story. The discount code there is Luke15, and that gets you 15% off. Again, that's earthechofoods.com slash Luke Story. What an incredible episode we have for you today, folks. If you're a spiritual seeker or even spiritually curious, this might be the show for you. This is episode 339, Being Ram Das, Remembering a Spiritual Master with Rameshwar Das. I recently got a hold of the new book, Being Ram Dass, and uh, let me tell you, as far as spiritual memoirs go, this one is incredible. So I was really excited to sit down with its co-author, Rameshwar Das, or Ramesh for short, who's a writer, photographer, and co-author of several Ram Dass books, including Be Love Now, Polishing the Mirror, and of course, the newest, Being Ram Dass. Ramesh was also one of Ram Dass's closest friends and confidants for almost 50 years. So the stories you're going to hear in this episode are absolutely incredible. In this expansive and multifaceted conversation, we discuss a slew of stories from the book and Ram Dass's life, as well as the following topics. What Ramesh's first trip to India was like and the miracles that he witnessed there. The various iterations of the life of Ram Dass, from a Harvard professor to a psychedelic cosmonaut, then devotee of his guru Maharaji, to finally becoming one of the world's most renowned and one of my favorite spiritual teachers. How Ramesh spent 10 years working on this book with Ram Dass after his stroke and the grace with which Ram Dass navigated his own numerous and challenging physical ailments. We also discuss at depth some of the wildly harrowing and fascinating stories of Ram Dass's early psychedelic experiences and research. We also talk about whether or not Ram Dass ever tried 5-MeO-DMT and why he didn't discuss DMT much in general in the book or otherwise. Why and when Ram Dass eventually gave up using psychedelics in his spiritual exploration. The cities or spiritual powers of masters like Ram Dass's guru Maharaji, aka Neem Karoli Baba. The fascinating stories in the book about power trips between some of the famous Indian gurus like Muktananda and Satya Sai Baba. We also talk about Rameshwar's first visit to see Maharaji in 1970 and some of the spiritual phenomena he experienced there. Some of the most intriguing stories about Ram Dass's experience with Maharaji. And Ramesh also shares the details of one of my all-time favorite Ram Dass stories about the two occasions wherein he administered massive doses of LSD to his guru and what happened afterward. We also explore Ram Dass's deep work around death, grief, and attachment, and how his perspective ultimately impacted his own journey through the death experience. 
Ramesh also discusses how Ram Dass seemed to have avoided building a spiritual ego and managed to remain humble and authentic throughout his career despite his increasing fame. And finally, we discuss enlightenment as a goal and whether he considered Ram Dass to be an enlightened being at the time of his passing. In addition to these topics, we veer in and out of so many fun and inspiring conversation threads. So whether or not you're familiar with Ram Dass or not, this episode is sure to inspire you to expand your consciousness and what it means to live a spiritually centered life. So prepare yourself now, my friends, to be uplifted as we explore being Ram Dass with the delightfully wise and funny Rameshwar Das. And as always, feel free to share this episode with a friend if you feel inspired to do so. Enjoy the show. Man, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Well, it's really a pleasure. I'm, yeah, I'm glad you, too, you uh, got to your destination so we could do that. <laughs> Me too, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is my... I did record one podcast here since I moved, but this is my first Zoom uh, you know, remote one. So I'm glad mm. it was with you. And and for the people that are watching the video, I'm going to hold up this incredible book, Being Ramdas, which you were a big part of um, creating. And I've been just like eating this book up. I took it to Mexico on a recent trip and it's, it's taken me a while mm. to get through it. So I'm kind of skipping around a little bit, but it's just, it's so juicy. And I'm just so happy to have this conversation with you all about your relationship with Ramdas and your experience with Maharaji and and just the whole journey. It's just it's well, a, it's nice it, to have that book out in the world. I'm sorry Ramdas isn't around to enjoy the fanfare and such, but um, it's been a a, a long term uh, project, and uh, it uh, it's got a life of its own now. Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, think about all of the uh, the younger readers and the next generation of spiritual seekers that might have just become aware of his work or will in the future. And we have such a comprehensive account of his very interesting and unique life, which I think is is such a gift, you know, whether he's still around in his body to bask in that or not, you know, it's just <laughs> for the rest of us that are left here that are such fans of of his work, it's just, it's incredible. Um, so take me through a little bit of the process of of writing the book. From what I understand, it took about 10 years of, of communication and hanging out between you two and you sort of extracting stories out of him to, to create this narrative and put it together. I'm just curious from a writing perspective, what was that process like? It sounds a bit unconventional. Well, uh, working with him, especially after the stroke, was pretty unconventional. He was a master storyteller uh, before that. I remember talks where he would keep kind of threads of three stories going at the same time. And then they would all kind of knot up together at the end. And it was like, how did he do that? <laughs> right, right. But uh, after the stroke, uh, you know, he had, um, the stroke was in 97 and he had complete aphasia for a while. I mean, he couldn't talk at all. And this is, uh, uh, you know, someone who had uh, led his life lecturing and teaching and uh, on the road giving talks for decades. And suddenly he's uh, brought to a complete stop, almost a dead stop, because they didn't think he was going to survive the stroke. And um, then he managed to keep going for another 20 odd years, which was extraordinary. I mean, it was. Uh, 
Um, and he worked like hell to get what could back of his speech and stuff. But he went really from being, oh, uh, there's this great uh, line from uh, Wavy Gravy from the hog farm and Seva who said mm -hmm. that uh, Ramdas went from being the master of the one liner to the master of the ocean liner. <laughs> You kind of slowed down. Oh man, that's funny. So the process of working together was a little bit like that. And uh, I am not the uh, uh, fastest typist in the world, but um, I uh, was able mostly to keep pace with him as he spoke. So we would go back and forth and I would uh, write stuff down and I'd read it back to him and he would think about it and see if that was the way he wanted to say it and add more details. And uh, we ended up with a pile of material, only about uh, two thirds of which is in the book. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, and there were, you know, there were a lot of details and stories of, uh, especially of his early life, which I didn't know. I mean, I, I met him when he first became Ramdas and I didn't know Richard Alpert, his earlier identity at all. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's such an interesting way to write a book, especially just considering the, the impediment to his speech from the stroke, you know, it's like having listened to, I don't know, probably hundreds of hours of his lectures at this point. Yeah. And then subsequently his appearances on, you know, Regu Marcus's podcast, uh, the, the, um, uh, what is the podcast called? The Ram Das podcast. It does have a name. It doesn't come to me. No, Raghu does one called Mind Rolling. Right. But on the Be Here Now Network. Yeah. But then Raghu <laughs> has the Ram Das podcast where he yes. plays the lectures yeah. and stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, and then he would periodically interview RD. I'll just call him for the, the sake of um, sure. saving us um, breath. But he would interview him, you know, for many years post stroke and, I think you'd have to be someone who was very interested in his work and perspective and really understand who he was to kind of hang in there and have the patience to um, take in what he was trying to articulate. Yeah. Sometimes he, as, as uh, it took him a back. while. Uh, I think he described it as he was doing the speech therapy after the stroke. He said the words were like clothes in a closet. And I had to go looking around to see which one uh, I could pull out or to try on. That's yeah, that's a really great <laughs> analogy. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, I guess this just is my lack of understanding about the the after uh, aftermath of a stroke. But was was his um, cognition also impaired in any way, or is it that he was still just as bright as ever? brain-wise, but just had a harder time actually articulating his thoughts and getting the ideas out just because of the speech? Or was it a bit of both? No, it was really the, the latter. His mind was pretty clear. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, at times he was, you know, having to take antibiotics for infections and things like that that kind of made him fuzzy. But um, yeah, he was really, uh, his consciousness was curiously unaffected. And I think, you know, whatever that, um, what do they call it? Neuroplasticity. I think he found some new uh, channels in there. Right. And uh, it also was, you know, that real demonstration that um, consciousness is not just uh, in the brain. Right. Because uh, right. he was very present. And, but his, you know, um, way of being 
changed from, you know, somebody who was mobile and on the move and that constant interchange with people, he became much quieter and much more in his uh, heart. Mm -hmm. And that that evolution, which I think is really what, uh, you know, happened at the end of his life. And and we started um, running retreats out in uh, Hawaii where he was living because he got, uh, he basically was stranded in Maui. Right. Right. Cause he got sick again after the stroke in 2004 and, uh, that he got a, a UTI that, uh, got into his bloodstream and, you know, it almost took him out again. Um, so, uh, after that he didn't travel much. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to actually just back up for a minute. You know, I, I started this conversation just assuming anyone and everyone, all the thousands of people that yeah. will eventually hear this conversation already know who Ramdas was, but perhaps you could give us just kind of an overview of his biography as a, a professor at Harvard uh, until he was fired into the psychedelic research going to India. Give us like a little bit of a timeline and... Um, to help, I think, create some significance for people that are as of yet unfamiliar with his body of work and his life. Well, uh, you know, he was a generation ahead of me. Uh, he was born in 1931. Uh, and uh, his family were, by then, pretty wealthy Jewish folks in uh, Boston. His father was a lawyer uh, who was a, a assistant DA in Boston and later uh, became a businessman and ran a railroad. And his wife came from a, a pretty wealthier family that had a, a carpet business. His upbringing, I think, was not the easiest. You know, there was a lot expected of him. He had two older brothers. So there was this whole sort of sibling configuration in the family constellation that was, you know, not always easy on him. And he chose psychology when he got to college. And I think largely because he was really having, uh, you know, a struggle with his own identity. And that identity theme really carried through the rest of his life. Yeah, very much so. That search for who he was on the inside. Yeah. So he's uh, getting through college in the late 40s, early 50s. And psychology at that point was really... Um, still, uh, you know, kind of a, a fledgling science, especially social psychology, which is what he went into. There was basically otherwise Freudian and behavioral psychology, and he chose social psychology, which is a new field. He also uh, got into clinical psychology when he got to uh, Stanford, where um, he did his uh, Ph.D., and a brief aside, he uh, did his master's degree in psychology at uh, Wesleyan in Connecticut, which is where I went to school, where I met him. So oh, we'll interesting. circle oh. back to that. Okay. <laughs> so he gets deeply into psychology and he really became quite skilled at it. He, his fields in psychology were child development and uh, achievement motivation. So he starts understanding about, you know, what drives a human being a lot. And he started doing uh, clinical therapy also at the, uh, you know, therapy um, 
student agency at uh, Stanford. And then he continued doing that at Harvard. So he moves from Stanford to Harvard. And at Harvard, he met uh, a new hire that had come into their uh, department, a guy named Timothy Leary. What a a fortuitous (laughs) meeting. You know, it's it's, it's interesting, like the impact that the two of those knuckleheads had on (laughs) our culture. It's incredible. I mean, there's no way to really quantify it, but what what a meeting that was. Yeah. No, and, 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 you know, at the beginning, they were serious scientific researchers. And, they, you know, this was Harvard. This was uh, pretty uh, staid academia. But I, quickly, both of them were pushing limits in different ways. And eventually they got fired from Harvard. But they continued their psychedelic researchers researches at up at this um, place in upstate New York called Millbrook, which was a an estate owned by some friends uh, who uh, allowed them to use it for a base. And then at, at, along the way, I mean, things were sort of coming off the rails a little bit uh, at Millbrook. Uh, Leary was getting uh, persecuted, I think is probably the best word for it, by you know, the local law enforcement people and the feds started getting on his case. And eventually they, uh, he went to jail and escaped. Ramdas, for some uh, odd reason, uh, never ran afoul of the law. Wow, and that's, that's um, he could have, you know, yeah, he was yeah. doing some pretty out there things along the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like the, uh, you know, taking groups of people to Mexico to take a bunch of acid. and Yeah, well, that was all legal at that time. Right, because that was in the research phase. Yeah, it's. Fun. I think it's funny to think for you know my generation and younger, it's hard for us to imagine that uh, some of these things were not scheduled. Some of these substances at, at one point were just kind of under the radar, and uh, and then eventually got you know classified along with all of the hard drugs. Um, hopefully, we're seeing you know a reemergence. I think we are very strongly. This, yeah, so that's that's good news. But it's hard to imagine someone could have just flown with a big bottle of pure LSD in an airplane, you know, just, just some of the stories, you know, in the context of our time, you think like, wow, how did they get away with that? So it is interesting that he never had any scrapes with the law from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's almost as if he was, you know, on, on a, a trajectory that was not of his own making because uh, after Millbrook came apart and he was uh, living in New York and he, took up a, an offer from a friend to travel to India. And largely because um, they had gotten some hints through uh, the writer Aldous Huxley, actually, originally. Huxley had brought them a copy of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And it became a model for psychedelic journeys. And that was the uh, paradigm they used for the psychedelic experience uh, book, which is still circulating in some later printings. So there was um, some feeling that people in the East might know how these planes of consciousness work, that they were groping around with and didn't really know how to navigate. I want to, so, uh, I want to, that was the search. I want to interject one thing before I forget, and then we'll get on to the India, um, you know, journey. But mm. one of the one of the funniest things in the book to me was the story, and it was it wasn't even a story; it's just a, a sentence that was talking about Aldous Huxley and his wife, 
Yeah. His wife had been with him at his bedside the moment he died. And he had requested that she administer LSD to him as he was crossing over. Yeah. It was just sort of an afterthought in the book, a, a sentence or so. And I thought, wow, that's heavy. <laughs> that's heavy. That guy was hardcore. I mean, you think like, wow, okay, Aldous Huxley, sure. Interesting character to say the least. But uh, that particular tidbit of it, there's so many little nuggets like that. I'm like, wait, did I read that right? And then I read it again. I'm like, what a, what a time. What a, what a historical account. Well, these people were all risk takers. And Ram Dass was definitely in that class. And he did some crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. With his airplanes. and Yeah. I mean, flying a, a, a two-seater airplane on acid is not <laughs> yeah. really... You know what it kind of, you know, practice, but. There's, there's parallels with, you know, and maybe they're even, you know, cross paths or knew each other, but um, Hunter S. Thompson, right? I'm thinking of yeah. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's some of the the eras covered when it, when it comes to the psychedelics and stuff. It's like, it's almost as if it was the Wild West and and one could get away with a lot of things that today would seem insane, such as just flying around your own airplane and crossing U.S. borders with drugs and all of these kind of things. And just that very like, mm-hmm. you know, just the, that that American cowboy sort of bravado of just kind of doing whatever you feel like doing. But it it reminds me kind of of the fear and, loss, uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas and just that kind of reckless abandon, even though I know, you know, Ram Dass and his crew were not so much about partying, but really exploring consciousness. But it really is an interesting time to just yeah. reflect on. When he got out to California and he had known Ken Kesey, for instance, from Stanford. Right. And, you know, those uh, uh, kind of joint enterprises that occurred out there. And uh, he got very friendly with the Grateful Dead. And there was a lot of interchange at that juncture. And some of it got out of hand, clearly. Um, And Leary was, you know... uh, Nixon at one point called him the most dangerous man in America, which was pretty laughable. <laughs> That's it funny. was sort of the basis, you know, that was the beginning of the war on drugs, which Reagan and right. Nancy uh, uh, before perpetuated. I de- before I derailed you, you were getting into uh, uh, his arrival in India. Take us yeah. back there. And this this is where, you know, in one way, the story really gets more interesting when he meets his guru. I mean, this is where real magic starts to happen. And the kind of the third iteration of Richard Albert emerges out of yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of think of his uh, life as having um, you know three incarnations packed into one. Basically, the psychology lifetime and the uh, psychedelic explorations, and then the um, life with the guru, and after that, yeah. And there were those inflections. I mean, the first time he took psilocybin was such an opening for him. And he felt like he was, I think his description was home in my heart. And he felt the same thing uh, with Maharaji in a different respect. And it was, uh, you know, that description, which we went back over a bunch of times of, of his first meeting with Maharaji and this uh, old man in a blanket who uh, knows everything that is going on in his mind. And that completely uh, changed his uh, view. And there's an expression in, uh, uh, I don't know whether it's Hindi or Sanskrit, but the word is darshan. 
mm-hmm. in India, which means I think the literal translation is view, but it's really about point of view. And when you meet a saint or, you know, a higher being, you get that um, kind of look at things from where they're coming from. And that is like a reflection of your deepest being. And that was what occurred with Maharaji, with the guru, with this uh, apparently rather uh, simple man who um, was, you know, more like a, a, a deity, really. I think and, one of uh, the, the many things that's interesting about Maharaji um, in terms of the other mystics and sages and gurus of India is, and I could be wrong and I just haven't discovered it, but there doesn't seem uh, as if there was a body of work or teachings you know, that he created or around him. Whereas even like someone sort of obscure like Nisargadatta Maharaj, you have mm-hmm. transcripts of his talks and things like that, yeah. where there's a book you can read that you know, explains the non-dualistic teaching, et cetera. Um, yeah, and Ramana Maharshi and yeah, Ramakrishna's you know, gospel and so on. Right, Yogananda. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's they've created organizations or temples or teachings, books, et cetera, uh, or even videos in some cases of, of them teaching. And Maharaj, yeah. you know, it's like, I think for many of us, his teachings have been sort of relegated to RD's interpretation and expression of them of just us kind of trusting in his experience of that, of that, you know, Shakti or that sense of unconditional love and some of the powers or cities that, that he was able to uh, demonstrate, but there's not like a lot to dig your teeth into. Is that, no, you can't much? read about it. You can't join it. Right. right. <laughs> you can't, you, you can't get initiated into it. Yeah. <laughs> And in, in in the book, I think something that was really personally interesting to me are the stories about in one of R.D.'s trips to India, or I guess I was actually in the U.S., he got connected to Muktananda. Yeah. And um, that was interesting to me because when I was about eight years old, I was taken by my mom to Muktananda's ashram in Oakland. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And it had, a, it had a really, which I think was... Mm-hmm was, you know, a, a, a great karmic blessing to be a kid and just be in that energy field, despite some of Mukhananda's, yeah. you know, kind of interesting uh, things, which we can discuss. But, you know, when I hear his name ever, I always perk up like, ooh, that was the first master, you know, that mm-hmm. I probably was in the presence of. Cur- curiously, I was uh, traveling to India in 1970 for my first time going there. And... Uh, uh, I was with uh, Krishna Das and Danny Goldman, who were friends from Ramdas scene. And we met Muktananda, who was headed west. Oh, funny. In London. Wow. And somebody had told us to go see him and that he would be there. And then Ramdas met him in New York uh, subsequently. Right. But, uh, I mean, for me, it was kind of a revelation also because uh, uh, we were in a flat in London. And uh, there weren't that many people, it was, you know, maybe 20 or something. And people were bouncing around the room with Shakti Pot, literally. Really? Wow. And, you know, going into mudras and meditations. And, uh, and he was very uh, kind to us. He, you know, uh, 
gave us mantra and initiation and told us to go stay at his ashram when we got to India, which we did. We spent a week there when we landed. Oh, that's so interesting. It was very lovely. And, uh, you know, but he was the first, you know, uh, uh, being of that kind of different quality. Who was a real yogi. And it was very powerful meeting him. And he was a very powerful being. As, as you probably yes. sense when you were around him, there was a real field of energy around him. I think that it did have a big impact on me. I mean, my account of it is uh, spotty. There are certain details I remember about the ashram and the experience, you know, smells and sights and things like that mm -hmm. that were subtle, not something that was said, but pretty exotic for an eight-year-old. Yeah, very <laughs> much so. I mean, I loved it. I loved it. And ever since that, I've been really enamored with I guess, Eastern mysticism and, and all things India in terms of the mm. spiritual lineage and have just benefited so much from so many of the teachers. But my mom said that when she took me up to get my blessing uh, during Darshan, that he said, he looked at me, he said, ah, oh, you have a very old soul. And I remembered, I really mm. got off on that. I was like, yeah, mom, <laughs> I'm, I'm no kid. You know, I've got an old soul. And, uh, and I reckon he was probably right. You know, all these years later, yeah. I lived a bit. But it definitely had an impact on me. But I, I think something that's interesting in the book is how, uh, you know, Ramdas had already met Maharaji, then got connected to Muktananda, started working with him a bit. And then his perception of Muktananda was that he was uh, partially interested in power and would use his cities or his, you know, these unique spiritual abilities in ways that were sometimes maybe even less than integrous, and that he noted a contrast between the energy field of Maharaji that was just completely outwardly giving and the expression of love and required nothing in return. There was no agenda. He didn't want anything. And that he sensed that Muktananda kind of wanted something and he was fine for position as top guru and having that the, the thing with Sai Baba and this little competition yeah. between them. And I think that's... Um, so interesting that someone can be enlightened, I guess would be uh, the way we would describe that and have access to these energies and be so high spiritually yet still succumb to the, the humanness of feeding on that power. I've always found that interesting. I think if somebody can perform these cities, then they're closer to God and they have a clear connection and access to those energies. And so therefore they would just automatically be uh, above some of those lower, you know, animal, uh, animalistic, ego-driven <laughs> behaviors, right? It's just, it's always, I think I'm just spiritually gullible in that way, you know? It's like, well, it's, that's, you know, uh, Westerners are, we have no exposure to that uh, level of, of, of cities, you know, of powers and yeah. stuff. But uh, Indian, uh, it's kind of, it's not commonplace, but it, it, people are used to those stories and it's part of their uh, tradition. And, uh, but, I, you know, I, I always remember uh, Ramakrishna saying, you know, that the cities come in the course of spiritual uh, work on yourself. Or, and, but um, if you get them, don't use them because it only leads to trouble. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Well, I, you know, <laughs> and Maharaji was like, I, you know, he was, as some people thought of him as a, uh, a miracle Baba, you know, who did miracles all the time, but he, he was, I, I don't do anything. 
And I think that was sincere. I, it didn't, he didn't, stuff came through him and happened and, you know, but it wasn't, he wasn't sitting around plotting about it. And he was he wasn't manifesting Vibhuti and creating trinkets for people and things like Satya Sai Baba. <laughs> the hallmark of Maharaji for me was uh, this kind of quality of synchronicity. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, stuff would happen that was, you know, if you thought about it, it was unaccountable in a, a, a natural situation. Things wouldn't happen that way unless you know there was something else operating, but you couldn't tell what. And the other thing that was really the uh, hallmark of his being was just this incredible love. And I, I remember sitting with him. It was, it, he was rarely quiet, but uh, there was one time we were sitting with him and uh, just uh, we were sitting near the bathrooms in the back of the ashram. <laughs> and he had built a lot of bathrooms because he thought there were there were a lot of people that started coming after he left his body. They needed them. We're sitting out, you know, and and suddenly uh, he gets quiet and he's just like sitting there, almost like a rock. And I was kind of meditating, and he rarely, you know, gave you space to meditate around him. It was always talking and throwing fruit and this and that. But the space around him, and it was just this incredible feeling of love. And I was feeling more love than I'd ever felt in my life from a, my parents or a lover or, you know, anyone. And I opened my eyes and I realized everyone around there was feeling the same thing. And he was just radiating that. Wow. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. Back in the mid-90s, when I really committed to my own health and recovery, one of the most important parts of that journey was getting into juicing. And I've had a bunch of different juices. I've gone through phases of doing juice fast and then, you know, now spending tons of money at the juice stores because I'm too busy and or lazy to do it myself. But I really believe that extracting the nutrients from nature's abundance of life-supporting plants is really critical to a health regimen. However, it's expensive and inconvenient, or it used to be. Enter our sponsor, Organifi. These guys make some fantastic powdered juice blends and superfood blends that are extremely potent, very well-sourced, very pure, easy to use, delicious, and I've just been a fan of them for many years, so I'm really happy to talk about today's product of choice. It's called Organifi Red Juice. It's got 13 superfoods to support energy in a berry superfood drink. It's 100% certified organic, no caffeine necessary, and just two grams of naturally occurring sugar from the freeze-dried berries. The berry blend that's extremely nutrient-dense and antioxidant-rich. Tastes delicious and just plain water. You can literally stir it up with a spoon. So I like to use the Organifi Red Juice in that afternoon slump when I start to feel a lull or before a workout. Anytime I feel like I want another cup of coffee, but I probably shouldn't, is a time for Organifi Red Juice. It's also really convenient to use on a go. I'm here recording these plugs right now in Austin, Texas. I've got a bag of the little Organifi Red Juice packets, which is how I had one this morning. 
And so I really like the fact that they're not only very nutritionally dense, but they're easy to habituate into your life. It's not a hassle. It's not expensive. I don't have to go drop 14 bucks for the same juice at a juice spot and waste the glass and the time and energy. I just walk into the kitchen, pop one of these in a cup, stir it up, and I am done. So that's Organifi Red Juice. If you want to check it out, I highly recommend that you do. And I can't guarantee, of course, because I don't know you personally, but I can almost guarantee that you're going to love it. And as you drink your first cup of Organifi Red, you're going to be thinking, damn, Luke hooked it up. Thank you, Luke. So you can thank me later. But first, you have to go to Organifi.com slash Lifestylist. That's O-R-G-A-N. I-F-I, Organifi with an I, Organifi.com slash Lifestylist. And if you use the code Lifestylist, you're going to save yourself 20% off. That's Organifi.com slash Lifestylist. And now back to the interview. I get the sense uh, just from feeling into it that toward the end of uh, Ramdas's life as yeah. his speech became more limited that he was starting to um, yeah, radiate in that same way. Yeah. Do you, do you, I think when he left his body, he, uh, you know, it, on, in Hawaii, every Monday was beach day. And he used to love to get into the ocean and just, uh, he had like a, you know, a life fest and uh, they had this wheelchair with balloon wheels and they'd get him down into the water and he could float. And all of that, you know, the gravitation of uh, that paralyzed body was gone and he could just float into the ocean and he just called it the ocean of love. And I think mm. that was what it felt like when he died. He yeah. went into that space. Yeah. Wow. I'd like to back up into a little bit of the kind of doing this in a very nonlinear <laughs> yeah, way, which well, I the guess book is kind of nonlinear. I guess too, it's so just my style, but <laughs> there have these so many things that I've been curious about his journey. Uh, you know, having, as I said, listened to so many of his talks, but there's still things that popped up in the book. I was like, what? I never heard that story. Mm. I mean, I guess you live that long. You're born in the thirties and you live that long. There's going to be a lot of stories. But uh, he talks a lot about his his first experimentation with psilocybin. Yeah. I'm assuming some of that was synthetic, and then also he did mushrooms, and then of course went into uh, you know a lot of LSD use. Much of it was terrifying sounding to me. I mean, just you just reading that book, I'm like, I could probably never do LSD for the rest of my life and be pretty happy about it. I used to go see the dead a lot and take acid in a very unconscious <laughs> way. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's fun, you know, it's fun yeah. for a yeah, few hours great. and then yeah. not so fun for the, the, the last four. But one thing that was interesting in the, in the book was that he talked about in the early research, pre-India and all that, that they were working a lot with LSD. And then he also mentions in passing um, using DMT. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really hear him expand on that. I've not heard him explore that particular substance much and I might've just missed it. So I'm curious if... If you know, in the course of writing the book or just knowing him, if, if he had anything more to say about that, because in my own experience and research, uh, I've never done DMT, but have done quite a bit of ayahuasca and also 5-MeO DMT mm -hmm. and benefited tremendously from those experiences done very consciously. Yeah. Um, did, did he have any experience with 5-MeO, the Bufo toad or, or DMT or ayahuasca? Do you, do you happen to know? I don't know. He did mention the uh, toad slime stuff once, and he said he 
he took a, such a big hit that he really needed help getting back from it. <laughs> okay, yes, that would sound about right. Yeah. Okay, so and the he, DMT, I don't think he did a, a lot of, but he okay. they, he definitely tried practically anything that came his way. Right. And, you know, he describes taking out his little uh, traveling pharmacy when he meets Maharaji and Maharaji asks him about uh, acid. But he, Maharaji said, uh, you, you have medicine? And Ramno said, well, I've got some, you know, this and that, but I, nothing that, well, he thought Maharaji had a headache and needed aspirin. Right. Because Maharaji said, for my head, Maharaji, you know, medicine for my head. And finally, Maharaji said, the yogi medicine. And Ramdas thought of, okay, you must mean the LSD. Yeah. And, um, but this when he my, takes out is... that little pharmacy, he's got a little, right. uh, you know, STP and this and that. And, you know, for going up and coming down. <laughs> uh, you're getting into, by the way, what is probably my favorite story of all about, <laughs> about uh, RD and Maharaji. Would you continue with the, the LSD and Maharaji story? Because this one's fascinating to me. Well, the first time, uh, so Maharaji... He gives Ramdas gives him uh, uh, four of Owsley's White Lightning 305 microgram LSD doses. Wow! Each of which is uh, enough to put a, a grown person, uh, you know, well over the moon. And Maharaji apparently takes all of them, but Ramdas is sitting a little bit off to the side, and. He sits watching Maharaji. He's worried about him, and nothing happens. And that was sort of the first, you know, uh, blow to his premise that psychedelics were a, a spiritual path. And not that he ever denied that, because it had been the path of his uh, opening. Um, and then he went back to the state after learning yoga and doing this intense meditation. And he comes back to India uh, about almost two years later, two and a half years later, almost. And at some point, uh, Maharaji says, uh, and he had, when he got to the States, he was thinking about Maharaji uh, in, in, in that acid experience. And he wasn't sure that Maharaji might not have just palmed the acid and thrown it over his shoulder. Right. right. He had this doubt. Yeah. He well, just yeah. couldn't get rid of it. You know, I mean, you know, with how, could, how could a, any human animal uh, take that much acid and not show signs? I mean, like... Nobody I know. 300 micrograms <laughs> in and of itself for any normal person would be a lot, let alone, you know, a few of those. So, yeah. and so, Ramdas had a high tolerance by that time. So it was pretty strong and very pure acid and it had been made especially for him by Owsley. So uh, the second trip, Maharaji says, did you give me medicine last time? And Ramdas said, yeah. And uh, he said, uh, did I take it? And Ramdas said, I think so. And that is that moment, you know, of doubt. And Maharaji says, got any more? And Ramdas had five more pills. And one of them was uh, tablets and one was broken. 
So, but Maharaji took the uh, other ones and um, he said, can I take water with it? Ramdas, yeah. And then he takes them one at a time, carefully puts them on his tongue and acts like he's really enjoying them. (laughs) And then he says, uh, will it make me crazy? And he kind of goes under his blanket you know, puts his blanket over his head. And when he comes back up, he looks like uh, his, uh, you know, eyes are rolling and his tongue is hanging out and he looks completely mad. And then he stops and he's just completely, you know, pulling Ram Dass leg. And it's completely, nothing happens again. Wow. And he's talking to people and Ram Dass is sitting there watching him like a hawk and worried that he's killed his guru. But Nothing. Such an incredible story, you know, because you you unpack that and try to discern what what could have transpired that would make that just physiologically, biologically possible, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't compute. Yeah, and a, a theory on it because I've pondered this before because you know there's always the experience of integration, right? So one might take a plant medicine journey or ceremony or a psychedelic and and have some incredible insights and merge with all of consciousness and God and experience unconditional love and all these things uh, that one could hope for. And then you come back and you're, you're you again. Mostly, right? There, there's, you know, you you know you've been somewhere and you know it exists, but you also know you got to come back and empty the trash. That's always the problem with psychedelics. Sweep the floor, right? <laughs> um, so, in that story with him seemingly being unaffected by a large dose of LSD twice, I've figured that he must have been at such a high state of consciousness that that experience of what we might experience as being high, quotes, uh, to him was just his standardized modus operandi at that high state of consciousness. Because it seems to me that what some of these tools do, and, and maybe even more so with the illicit kind of street drugs, is they just sort of dampen the lower frequencies so that we are able to perceive what is already present, right? Yeah, that's what Michael Pollan talks about in the How to Change Your Mind book and, you know, about how it suppresses uh, the parts of the mind that uh, keep you rational, I guess. But, you know, there, we, uh, most of the people, that the Westerners who uh, saw Maharaji had gotten there through psychedelics. I certainly did. Uh, that was my original expectation when I went to see Ramdas was that he knew about that. And um, so at some point we asked Maharaji about it and he said uh, a number of things r- relevant to that. Uh, one being he said that uh, yogis in the Himalayas had known about such uh, medicines but the knowledge had been lost really and uh, then he said it can take you into the room with christ but you can only stay for two hours and he said it's better to be christ than just to go visit oh wow um and then ramdas sometimes quoted that uh, wonderful alan watts line of when you get the message hang up the phone. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's great. So after receiving uh, instruction like that, did you and your crew and, and Ram Dass, did you guys phase out of the experimentation with psychedelics uh, quickly after you began going to India? Or was this something that went on for a period of time after that and just became integrated into your spiritual pursuits? I can really only speak for myself. I know Ramdas kept uh, using psychedelics and smoking pot for uh, some years. I think he finally completely stopped in uh, when he was living in Maui because uh, the one of the um, doctors, a Chinese herbalist and acupuncturist, uh, said, "Look, I'm I'm working on your brain here, and smoking pot." is counteracting what I'm trying to do. So he stopped. Right. You know, I think he got sort of clearer after that. For myself, I can only say that it sort of just fell away. I, I remember the last uh, couple of acid trips that I took, which were, I, I think the last one was in India, actually. And uh, I spent most of it coming down. It, it, was, it was getting, you know, kind of difficult and uh, hard coming back in mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and less uh, blissful. Yeah. You know, I, I, I certainly have n nothing against it. Um, it. Obviously, the set and setting thing that... Uh, Ramdas and Leary really developed uh, very thoroughly is so important to how you uh, use things like that. If you're doing it for fun and, you know, you're liable to, if, if you're not in situations that are conducive, that setting part, or if your mindset is not very clear about what your intentions are, you can get into trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that warning. I, I give that disclaimer a lot whenever covering yeah. those topics, you know, because I've earlier in life had many experiences that were quite negative because they were just not well planned. And also my intention was to uh, attempt to check out Mm -hmm. But as as you and anyone that's taken uh, those type of substances knows, it really checks you in, right? So whatever's present, yeah. you're going to see it. And if you don't want to look inside, that would be a, a definitely a, a wrong direction to head. Well, I will say for myself that uh, meditation has gotten more interesting than uh, drugs at this point. What's your meditation practice look like these days? I don't know what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> what are the and I don't know what it is, actually. But uh, we studied uh, Vipassana meditation a lot in India. Uh -huh. and that, that's a really useful practice. I, I've been uh, leading a little meditation circle, basically, uh, literally just ringing the bell and sitting with people at, at the local uh, yoga uh, center where I live. And, uh, of course, in COVID, that went on to Zoom. And I'm staying put. I'm not traveling uh, at all still. And um, so I've been much more regular about it than I had been. Oh, interesting. And it's good. It's that practice is really, you know, it's not, it's not called practice for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what, one. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. No, it's all right. It's, uh, 
I and use mantra and breathing, breath meditation, and some semblance of vipassana. And uh, I don't know what all. Cool, cool, awesome. Whatever uh, works. Let's see. Um, I think one thing that's really interesting in this journey is that you were really able to participate in the process of RD transitioning and and dying. And, yeah. I, you know, I know he did so much work in, I mean, if anyone ever is dealing with death, the first thing I do is send them a bunch of podcasts or talks, you know, of him exploring that. Mm. I think in our society, it's something that we really don't know how to deal with. We're very afraid of. It's just, it, it's just kind of, you know, pushed behind the curtain and uh, we don't want to look at our mortality, I think, because... Uh, maybe the Western mindset is more bent on uh, the idea that that we are mortal, <laughs> whereas in countries yeah. such as India, where this uh, this idea of reincarnation is more prevalent, uh, death seems to be something that's much more out in the open. And um, I'm curious what your experience was being with someone as they died who had done so much work around exploring death as part of the human experience. Well, he had done a lot more exploration of that than I had. But first, in the course of working with him, I I had this very, once I was out working with him on Maui and I'm out walking in the morning and my phone rings and I hear sirens in the background. And um, my uh, 14-year-old daughter had been run over on her bicycle. And um, I got back to the house. And when we heard that she hadn't made it out of the trauma surgery, I looked at Ram Dass and I said, uh, she didn't get to finish her life. I was just wrecked. And he looked at me straight in the eye and said, yes, she did. And that just minute shift of perspective to understanding that this is an incarnation. This is a birth. And, you know, we are beings in the flesh, incarnation, in the meat. And then something else happens and it's a mystery. But the power of that at that moment just at least took me out of it being about me and my grief for a moment. And then I had to get back on a plane and go home and take care of and be with her body and my wife and my son. And it was, that's uh, the worst thing that can happen to a parent. Oh, unimaginable. And, and it's still with me. And then being with him uh, over the years, there was, that uh, was in, in 2013. And, uh, you know, uh, he died in 2019, so that was six years later. And that's the only time being with him that I've been with somebody as they actually left their body. And it was quite, it was profound. And it was, you know, first there was this grief at losing someone that I'd known for 50 years who had been my mentor and friend for that time. And then there was this feeling of a kind of 
joy that he was out of that body, which was getting so difficult. And, um, and then the sense that his presence was very strongly there. So um, he certainly had less fear of death than anybody else I've known. He had looked at it. He had been with uh, many people when they passed. He really sat with a lot of people, especially during the uh, AIDS crisis in the late 80s. And that had started with his uh, mother's passing back in 1967, early 67. And uh, the degree of denial that he saw around her death really propelled him into re-examining how the culture deals with death. And he had really worked on that and created, um, you know, ways for the people to die more consciously and surrounded by a more spiritual environment. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What an interesting, what an interesting experience. I've never, I don't think I've ever been around uh, even a deceased person's body before that I recall maybe one brief open casket funeral a long, long time ago for someone that was just an acquaintance. Yeah. Um, I thought an interesting part of the story of you being present for his passing there in Hawaii was that his body was kept in, in the premises for what, three days on mm-hmm. ice. Yeah. Was that one of his uh, dying requests? I would assume. Yeah. yeah. He was, he was very thoughtful about what he wanted to happen at his death. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he, he, uh, there is a guy um, who, um, a Sufi teacher uh, named uh, Bodhi B on Maui, who has a death store, and he is an undertaker. But wow. they 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 were uh, of you know trying to make death uh, a much more uh, continuous experience, and they were trying to get uh, permission to uh, have a an open air cremation. Finally, the uh, Hawaiian Health Department wouldn't give them a permit to do that. So Ramdas was cremated at the local funeral home that had a crematory. Well, what what, what logistically went into a f- uh, play in order to keep his body there for those three days? Did did that require any dry ice? Oh wow! Yeah, you and his other friends did just. Hold that together and made that happen. I'm so curious how that would even be possible or what it would have been like. It's just incredible. Um, it was okay. And people were, it, it, we uh, kept him on in uh, his bedroom, uh, his room upstairs. And uh, um, he was lying out and um, the uh, guys that, had taken care of him lovingly for uh, years. Some of them washed his body and, you know, really prepared the body. And, and this guy Bodhi supervised the whole process. And then um, he, after three days, he uh, took the body and held it until we could get the cremation done wow. um, in a uh, refrigerator, I guess. And, wow. 
people were coming in meditating with his body for those three days. And it was very powerful and chanting and just sitting. And the presence in that room was powerful. Oh, I can imagine. What a neat, what a unique experience. You know, it's it's yeah. hard for me to put myself in that position thinking about a a longtime friend like that. It, it must have been really, <laughs> really incredible for you. That's a, that's just such an interesting story. Yeah, I it's, I don't uh, feel like he's gone anywhere much. You still feel his presence. Yeah, and and particularly, you know, uh, uh, um, the uh, book publication was such that I, basically I've spent the year after his death finishing the book. So I have been, uh, you know, kind of inhabiting his life and, uh, you know, a, a, a secondhand way. But right, that's his presence has been very much with me. Right, that's interesting. Yeah, here I'm interviewing you, right, and we're we're talking <laughs> about left me holding the bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, torch carrier. That's really cool. That's, that's well, actually... I'm just, uh, you know, part of the messenger service. I think. If we could all be so lucky to have someone like you to carry on our legacy, honestly. Um, there's one thing that I find really interesting about his journey and persona is that nowhere along the line did I perceive that he adopted a spiritual ego, that he got full of himself or started taking himself too seriously. He seemed to be able to maintain humility. And I think that was just largely demonstrated to me by his continued sense of humor. I find yeah. people that are very ego identified are very serious and especially about themselves. <laughs> he and, didn't take himself that seriously. That's true. Yeah. And he was so authentic about his continued neuroses in certain ways. Like one of my favorite things is he would talk about how he still bit his fingernails. And I always think that, that, you know, I'm not spiritual because I haven't been able to completely beat that habit yet, you know, or I, I have a little relapse on nicotine for a while. And I'm like, oh, we haven't made any progress, Luke. And I go, wait, Ram Dass did it, you know. Do, 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 I think those uh, neuroses and habits and things just became um, less relevant. Yeah, I think that um, quality of lightness um, allowed other people to uh, enter into the story with him also. That That is a kind of an aspect that came from, um, well, it, it, his, his sense of humor could be biting at times too. Let's be, you know, real about that. He sometimes was uh, not sarcastic, but sharp. <laughs> and that was fun. And we laughed a lot in the process of working on the book. Often just at the absurdity of our situations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and he, w- he was able to appreciate that in his own story a lot. I think that really, in addition to his uh, continued humility, was the oh, just the way that he seemed to be taking his physical limitations and going through that experience of the stroke. I mean, if if anyone ever had an excuse to go into victimhood martyrhood, et cetera, it, it would be in a situation like that. And, uh, you know, I don't know, you knew him intimately, but publicly facing, I never got the sense that he was feeling too sorry for himself about that experience and was able to find 
uh, unique gifts in having had that happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that's one of those, you know, non, even nonverbal teachings of just observing someone like, huh, they still seem happy. Right. And they're still able to carry themselves with some degree of, of lightness. And I think that's, that's a really powerful demonstration of, of the teachings and, and really embodying them. You know, he hung them around for uh, more than 20 years after the stroke. And it was not an easy time. And, uh, you know, his body was going downhill through a lot of that time. And and, uh, because the paralysis never really let up from the stroke. Mm -hmm. And he had a lot of pain and he never complained. I mean, if, if I kind of asked him about, you know, something specific, he would say, yeah, neuropathy in my feet is keeping me awake. I can't sleep very much. But he he managed to coexist with that. And he talked about how he had come to love that stuff in himself also. And that that to me is one of the great sort of parables of how to deal with your own stuff. My own stuff is to try and love it. Even when it's nasty and painful. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that's not an easy one. Absolutely. I haven't managed to pull it off myself. I remember having sciatica and it just hurt. (laughs) Same here. I mean, same, same thing. I mean, nothing to the degree that he's experienced, but, uh, you know, all of us have our persistent little aches and pains and that we want to fix the human body's fallible, right? Protoplasmic very vulnerable, uh, you know, machine that we're walking around in. And, you know, it was really, really powerful to see him actually go through that and just continue on. And, and you get the sense with some beings such as he, that I don't know, on one level, if they really wanted to leave, they could leave. I think I wouldn't have hung around as long as he did. (laughs) I mean, he did it for other people and more than that's, you know, it's a real testament to his commitment to service, you know, love, serve, remember. I think that's just one of the hallmarks of, uh, of his work and life also is just how deeply committed he was working with prisoners, working with the dying. I mean, he didn't just talk about it. He actually did it. And it's a, it's a pretty, pretty tough act to follow. I think about myself and I go, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm contributing. I have a podcast, but it's like, (laughs) I'm not going to San Quentin and teaching, you know, inmates how to meditate or some things that he did sitting in hospice with AIDS patients for years. And I mean, that's real, I guess to him, it wasn't a sacrifice, but that level of, of service is completely different than just being a nice person and being kind and compassionate on a day-to-day basis. I mean, he really did exemplify that principle in real life, which is just incredible. He paid some dues. Yeah. (laughs) The last thing I want to ask you, uh, and I don't know if this is an answerable question, but do you consider uh, Ram Dass to have been an enlightened being? And would he have considered himself as such? There's relatively enlightened compared to where I'm sitting. And yes, he, he, I consider him to, I, he was definitely further along than uh, I am in my development. He, he always, what he shared was helpful to anybody, you know, on a path. And he would address 
where you were in your own work. And I think that was one of the things he loved doing the most, actually, was sitting with people one on one and helping people along with their their work. But, um, you know, in, in the sense of a being who has completely finished their work, you know, um, and you know, people like Ramana Maharshi or Shirdi Sai Baba or uh, Ramakrishna and Maharaji for me and Nityananda, Muktananda's guru. Mm-hmm. Those beings are, are that quality of being both completely beyond and completely present in this reality at the same time. You know, there there wasn't a lot of somebody hanging around uh, wanting anything in any of those beings. And Ramdas still had stuff going on. And he was, you know, as you know, was completely open about it, mostly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's probably more of it than, um, you know, some of his followers would like in this book. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I love it. Yeah, and I, I think that quality of you know imminent and transcendent at the same moment is is such an interesting place to work with. It is, and I think it's a it's a great level to to strive to. Also, I think a lot of spiritual uh, seekers, including myself, especially in the beginning of the journey, thought that to really do this thing for real, if you really are pursuing enlightenment at the highest level possible, that you have to become a renunciate and just give up your <laughs> earthly possessions and aspirations and desires and really just go do that and be with God. And then as I think as some of us mature in that, you find that perhaps it's it the goal might be closer to what you just described, where you have access to consciousness in that way and, and the love that is consciousness, but also here in the householder position doing podcast and yeah. Doing your thing Kids here, and, you know, right? Yeah, <laughs> paying income income tax. Exactly, because <laughs> you know, I think in the beginning when I was maybe a little less mature, I thought, well, if I don't have cities and I don't, I'm not enlightened that I haven't done it right. And and maybe you know some of those beings that you just described that are, have been so remarkable and so unique and impactful, you know, perhaps the creator has set things up so that there it's a balanced energy on the planet or universally where there's only a few of them around at any given mm-hmm. time. Right. And it seems to keep evolution going on at this, what seems to be a snail's page pace in terms of human consciousness. But, you know, if there were, if there were thousands of beings at that level who, you know, who knows, maybe the, the balance wouldn't be there. It's, it's, uh, I have to arrive at the idea that either everything is perfect as it is, or it's not right. It's God is everything or God is nothing. And so, if I was meant to be an exalted uh, mystic like that, well, I would be. But the fact that I'm still very human means that, you know, I'm on the right path and that perhaps there's no destination to become so enamored with. Well, I think what those beings, uh, I remember being with Ananda Maima a couple of times, a, a wonderful woman saint whose name translates as a bliss permeated mother. and. Uh, she was kind of born that way. You know, she came in as a, like, you know, a manifestation of the divine mother or something. And uh, 
they married her off and her husband eventually became her, you know, disciple. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. <laughs> and she was uh, incredible. It was like, you know, just this deep field of like thick peace around her. But I think those beings show us that what's possible. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they're also, you know, the the ways that our, our minds try and conceptualize what that's about. Uh, they also show us that it's not conceptual. <laughs> right, right. It ain't figure outable. You, you can't you can't uh, achieve it. <laughs> you yeah. can only kind of surrender into it in some way. I don't know. Yeah, isn't that the crazy thing about spiritual pursuit? Is that it's it's like other than setting the intention, I guess it really is a yin process, right? It's you yeah. know those of us in the West are like, all right, let me read a book on enlightenment. I'm going to go out there and get her done. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm going to meditate until I'm done. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's an it's an interesting um, goal to have because it's one that is attained through surrender, as you said, you know, and um, and I think that. The, the work that Ram Dass mm. did and the way that you've carried on, you know, his legacy with this book is, is a really great example of that, of the ability to just allow yourself to be human, but also set your sights on the goal of at least moving upward in consciousness. Right. And well, uh, thank you for uh, saying that, but uh, I, I really feel like, you know, his life is sort of a, a, a parable of, you know, using this stuff that comes to you as the material for your spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. And he he really did that a lot. And and that quality of love that he brought to it, I think, is perhaps the uh, most um, powerful message that comes out of it. I, I know that he often quoted this uh, Gandhi story about um, Gandhi's on a train and he's just leaving this place that he's been visiting. And this reporter calls out to him just as the train's getting ready to pull out. And he said, Gandhiji, give me a message for your people. And Gandhi scrawls on a piece of paper and hands it out the window to him. And it says, my life is my message. Mm, Beautiful. I don't know. I'm in the great land of... I don't know. <laughs> that's amazing. That's a mic drop right there, my friend. That's uh, that's great. <laughs> that's <Ron>. good. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great way to wrap up a really uh, fascinating and inspiring conversation. Uh, I'd like to ask you in closing. I mean, I guess a couple of them might be obvious, but feel free to get creative. Uh, I always ask my guests who three teachers or teachings uh, in their life have been most influential that you might share with us. Hmm. Well, Ramdas about being in the moment. Maharaji, I think, about unconditional love. And Ramana Maharshi, for me, uh, you know, who I never knew, and he was dead before I got to India or anything, that self-inquiry of just following your sense of identity inward, I think has been a very helpful process but there's so many you know beings who have given me hints most of which i haven't followed but <laughs> well you followed enough of them we made it here man yeah we're here uh 
Thank you. Where that is, uh, who knows? <laughs> Thank you for that take. And uh, in closing, you know, everyone can find the book. I'm going to hold it up for our video viewers again. It's a very substantial book, by the way. I love a nice hardcover book. And this one, this is one I'm going to be sitting with for quite a while. Um, and you can find the book being around us wherever books are sold. Do you have any websites or anything you want to send people to other than that? Well, Ramdas.org is the uh, one that is kind of making his teachings available. A lot of his talks are, and you can get the book through the storefront there. And otherwise, you know, use your local indie bookstore. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really great to get to know you. And, and thank yeah, you likewise, for, Luke. Yeah. Thanks again for this contribution, man. I was so excited to see this come out and then to get to have a conversation with you has been really fun. So thank you very much. I hope Austin treats you well. So far, so good, my friend. Yeah. 70 degrees and sunny today after a, a, a bit of an early winter right before we got mm. here. So yeah, I'm feeling very at home, very grounded here. Uh, it's a much. I just moved to a town outside of Austin of uh, 15,000 people after 32 years in LA with 4 million people. So it's, yeah. uh, it's much appreciated space. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So thank you so much for joining me today on the Lifestylist Podcast. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Likewise. This was such an incredibly rewarding and inspiring conversation for me as someone who's followed Ramdas's work for so long. And Ramesh is the guy to talk to if you want to talk about Ramdas. I mean, frankly, they were friends for so long. And the 10 years that he put in to writing this incredible memoir, Being Ramdas, made this conversation a real treat for me. So I trust that you enjoyed it with the level of enthusiasm that I did. And if you did, make sure to share it with a friend. I'd also like to invite you to follow me on Instagram at Luke Story. That's L-U-K-E-S-T-O-R-E-Y. And one of the best things about my Instagram channel, according to me and hopefully a few other people like you, is that 99% of the time I live stream these conversations, even the ones that were done like this are remotely. So if you want to see the behind the scenes goings on, uh, I recommend that you follow me there. I'd love to hear from you. I interact with so many listeners. I do my best to keep up uh, with the direct messages and whatnot. I can't always uh, respond to all of them, but it's a great way for me to get to know you. And uh, while the censorship laden, corporate controlled, big tech giants all fall before us, eventually, uh, for now, I am still using Instagram, although I'm absolutely in opposition to many of their policies and <laughs> well we'll save that for another episode i'm there and uh, i'm using the platform for now and it'd be a great way to interact with you and get your feedback on episodes and if you hear shows like this and they're inspiring and you want to share them a great way to do that is posting them to your instagram stories and if you do so in a creative way i'll probably repost your story and perhaps even get you some followers or help you to make some connections there because Frankly, uh, despite some of the misgivings I have around social media and big tech in general uh, due to their shady behavior, uh, it still is a great way to foster community and to stay connected, especially in the times we face where uh, social interactions are limited. So that's what's up on Instagram. I'd also like to invite you to next week's episode and get the name of our guest, Philip Samore von Holzendorf Failing. Yes, he is a German gentleman. But uh, despite the uh, the difficulty I have pronouncing his names at his name at times, he was actually a great guest, and his English was on point, so it was very easy to communicate with him. And in that episode, we're talking about unlocking the mysteries of quantum technologies and EMF protection. 
So if you're someone like me who's spent a bunch of cash on these weird little stickers and medallions and pendants and things that are supposed to protect you from EMF. I mean, listen, I don't know if any of them work or not. I guess that most of them probably don't, but uh, Philip has cracked the code on some of this technology and I got to reach down here. Yeah, actually, I'm wearing one of his devices right now. And of all the things I found, uh, I think that they are the most effective and definitely have the most quantifiable evidence supporting their efficacy. So we talk about all things quantum technology and uh, dip into EMF protection a bit too. That'll be next Tuesday's show. And I look forward to uh, having you join us there. And then I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. First up, we've got Element. These are some incredible electrolyte powdered drinks that make fasting and avoiding carbs and sugar way, way easier. You can find that at drinkelement.com slash Luke. That's D-R-I-N-K. LMNT.com, drinkelement.com slash Luke. They're going to have a special offer for you over there where you can get some free stuff. How about that? And we've got Cacao Bliss from Mindful Health, and you can find that at earthechofoods.com slash Luke Story. That's an incredible cacao based superfood blend, and the code there is Luke15, and that gets you 15% off. Finally, we've got Organify. That's organify.com slash lifestylist. O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I, Organifi with an I, slash Lifestylist. The code there is also Lifestylist, and that gets you 20% off. And listen, I want to let you know that, uh, you know, at the end of the show, for those of you that still listen, when the plugs come, I know a lot of people probably tune out because who wants to listen to a commercial? Uh, But if you find any of these products intriguing and you want to check them out, and you're like, wow, that's a lot of URLs and a lot of codes. I know it's a lot of information. Every time I read them off, I'm like, wow, I would totally be tuning out right now, especially if I was in a car or something like that and didn't have the opportunity to write things down. So I'm going to make it easy for you to get your grubby little paws on some of our Uh, sponsors high quality health and wellness products you can find them all to keep it very simple at lukestory.com slash store there you will find the past five years of my exploration into all of these products i've curated a really amazing store there that is very carefully categorized so if you want to work on sleep there's a sleep section if you want to work on fitness there's a fitness section if you want to know where to get organic groceries and grass-fed meats and wild fish and things like that. Uh, There's a section for that. There's a section for everything at lukestory.com slash store. And all of these codes that I give you guys, because I always request, if not demand, quite frankly, that the companies that want to promote on the show offer you really nice discounts and promotions. Uh, You can also find all of these discount codes on the site as well. So when you find the product you want or you're looking for at lukestory.com slash store, All you have to do is click on it and you'll see the discount code there. So everything is there. And uh, in a similar way, depending on what app you use to listen to this podcast, you can also find these links and codes just by clicking on the show notes. So if you listen to uh, this show on the Apple Podcast app, for example, there's extensive show notes there beneath the title of the episode that include the codes and the links. It's a little different for each podcast app, but uh, just know that you can find them there too. That's what I use a lot. I was listening to, uh, man, let me see the name of it. Hang on one sec. I was listening to, I've been obsessed with these uh, like interior design podcasts. I mean, podcasts are so amazing, right? Anything you want to learn about, you can learn about for free uh, from a lot of people that really know their stuff. Where is it? Uh, it's called Inside Design with Kandrak and Cole. 
And I was listening to that and they were talking about these engineered wood floors or wallpaper or this certain kind of paint. I was like, oh man, how am I going to remember that? So I thought, ooh, maybe they do it like I do. And sure enough, I uh, scrolled down on that particular episode and there were the links and codes and all that stuff there. So we try to make it as convenient as possible for you to get what you want and at the same time support the show and the work that I'm doing here. So I always like to... Uh, you know, share any hacks for you that make all of this more simple. Because I know it can be overwhelming when I'm throwing all this stuff at you. And if you don't want to buy any of that stuff, like I always say, man, if you really want to be healthy, I'll tell you straight up right now. And my sponsors might not like this, but <laughs> honestly, it's my, but that's not my belief. It's because beliefs are malleable. It's my experience, which makes it a fact to me at this point in my life that if you're drinking really clean water, there's a lot of content around water. I've done a lot of shows about what I think the best water is, which is just absolutely pure, clean, high Rocky Mountain spring water. It's not always accessible to us, but you definitely don't want toxic water. But if you're drinking clean water, you're getting outdoors as much as possible, spending as little time indoors, getting natural sunlight on your body, uh, in your eyes. I don't mean stare at the sun, unless, of course, you're doing sun gazing in the morning and evening uh, safely. And there's an art and science to that in itself. But getting outside, undomesticating yourself, getting back to being a wild human, uh, not eating poison sprayed on food. So eating organic food whenever possible. Uh, what else? Um, of course, moving your body in whatever way feels good to you. Doing some joint mobility drills or exercises. Uh, doing high intensity interval training a couple days a week. Doing some intermittent fasting. Eating less is actually cheaper, it turns out. Eat less. <laughs> That's what I attempt to do. Um, yeah, what else is there? Uh, paying attention to your EMF exposure. You know, if you can't eliminate the EMF in your house and shield your bedroom, which would be, you know, something that's not free. Uh, if you got Wi-Fi in your house, at least turn it off when you sleep. Keep it far away from your body when you're working or hanging out, watching TV, doing your thing. Definitely keep your router far away from your bed. My point here is that most of the, what I consider to be uh, powerful health interventions have to do with just getting outdoors and interfacing with nature, getting your bare feet on the ground, uh, watching that sunrise, watching the sunset, getting in really cold water, whether it's an ice bath or even better, a freezing natural body of water. Cut a hole in some ice at your local lake in the winter and dip in there every morning for a good three to five minutes. It will change your life doing breath work. Breath work is free, folks. Air is free. Well, unless you're somewhere that requires you to wear a toxic formaldehyde-laden mask that limits your oxygen and causes you to breathe back in carbon dioxide and uh, loads of bacteria that have built up on said mask. But, you know, get outdoors where there's fewer chemtrails and more fresh air. All the things that really make you healthier free. And I always like to say that, you know, a lot of people have the misconception that you have to spend all this money to be healthy. And maybe, you know, honestly, if you're ill and you've lived a domesticated toxic lifestyle and you're paying the price now, yeah, you might have to spend some money. Go get some ozone, do this, do that, get a sauna, uh, PEMF, red light therapy. I mean, there's a lot of interventions that are very expensive. And even if you're a well person, they can really maximize your health and vitality but uh you know i just want you to know that you don't have to buy the stuff that i plug on the show it's for people that like want to go next level people that have a little bit of disposable income on hand and uh, also want to support the show in that way but i am a huge proponent of being your own healer using your intuition listening to your body as a part of who you are you know in the 
teachings of Ram Das and many of the masters like him, we of course learn that we are not our body, which is a huge shock to us. At the beginning of our spiritual journey, we go, wait, these thoughts I have aren't me. This body that I have is not me. There's a me that's inhabiting this body. There's a me that's witnessing these thoughts and these feelings and sensations, which was a huge breakthrough for me and continues to be something that I continually practice and remind myself. Yet at the same time, we are our body because our energetic blueprint or soul or spirit inhabits this body and we can learn to love it and communicate with it and ask it what it needs and what it doesn't need and some bodies might want a bunch of supplements and superfoods and high density nutrition at one time and want to break at another time which is not something i typically do but i like the idea of it i mean i try to cycle my supplements and things like that so there's a little pep talk on on health and supplements for you at the end of the show for those of you still listening. And if you are still listening, I truly appreciate you, your kind attention, your ears. I know time is so valuable, even though it's an infinite resource uh, in each body that we incarnate into. Uh, we do have a finite time here in this body. And so while we're here, that time becomes valuable. And I appreciate you spending it with me and our incredible guests, Rameshwar Das. I'll see you next week.